0: hosted by wealthmanagement.com senior editor David Lennox
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of wealthmanagement.com's celebrity estates wills of the rich and famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their core as very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. To learn more about estate planning and how you can better serve your clients, visit wealthmanagement.com trust estates. Our monthly journal features tax law updates, wealth planning, retirement strategies, and much, much more written by thought leaders in the industry. That's wealthmanagement.com slash trusts estates. Today, we're joined by Brian Dillon. Brian is the partner in charge of the Minneapolis Office for Lathrop GPM. Brian's an experienced litigator who specializes in trust and estate litigation, complex business and shareholder disputes, and responding to government investigations and enforcement actions. In the trust and estates area, Brian represents professional fiduciaries, individuals, families, and other interested parties involved in disputes over the validity or interpretation of wills, trusts, and other testamentary vehicles, as well as contested matters involving guardianships and servitorships, and the Rights of Vulnerable Adults. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian.
2: Thank you, David. Nice to be here. Well,
1: the subject of today's episode is Lisa Marie Presley, the, the daughter of the King Elvis Presley. Lisa Marie was one of the few inheritors of his estate alongside his father, Vernon, and his grandmother, Minnie May. Uh, Lisa Marie was only nine years old when Elvis passed in 1972, so her inheritance was held in trust until under the stewardship of First Vernon and subsequently her mother, Elvis's ex-wife, Priscilla. Uh, Lisa Marie inherited Elvis's whole estate, including Graceland, on her 25th birthday, uh, Vernon and Minnie-Me having long since passed at that point. Uh, due to these years of expressive spending and being bilked by his infamous manager, Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's estate was worth uh, $5 million at the time of his death, with only about $1 million dedicated to Lisa Marie before the deaths of Vernon and Minnie-May. However, by the time Lisa Marie inherited Elvis's whole estate in '93. The amount had grown to about 100 million thanks to the very successful stewardship of Priscilla. Sadly, after years of addiction and generally poor business decisions, Lisa Marie had largely squandered her inheritance, with Graceland being the main valuable asset left in the estate. And Lisa Marie died sadly in the evening of January 12th, 2023, after being rushed to the hospital as a result of cardiac arrest. Uh, After her death, Graceland and her trust were inherited by her daughters, Riley Keough and Harper and Finley Lockwood. Several weeks later, Priscilla Presley challenged the validity of an amendment to her daughter's living trust that named Lisa Marie's children as executors and trustees. The amended document purportedly removed Priscilla and Lisa Marie's former business manager, who were the original trustees, and basically completely cut Priscilla out. Uh, per Priscilla's allegations, Lisa Marie's signature appears suspicious in the 2016 amendment, and the documents had no witnesses. It misspelled her name, and was never given to previous trustees for review which was sort of one of the conditions for changing the trustee in the trust document itself. Priscilla and her granddaughter, Riley, reportedly aren't really communicating and are set to battle it out in court. Ryan, in your experience, how common is it for an estate to head into litigation like this one?
2: Um, I guess I would say it, it's certainly not uncommon. And it it feels like just from my own caseload, it, it's becoming more and more common. I guess what I'd say is it, it you know, circumstances matter when the, when the, Testamentary documents, whether you're talking about a will or a trust, are poorly drafted or seem suspicious on their face, as seems to be the case in the uh, Lisa Marie situation with unsigned, unwitnessed, not all I's and T, not all I's dotted, T's crossed, that kind of thing. The document's ambiguous. That's certainly going to raise questions Uh, when the documents are are either outdated or uh, recently revised, right, revised close in time to the death of the decedent particularly when they might change the allocation of assets in a yeah. way that heirs are, are 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 caught off guard you know in an unexpected way or a way that conflicts with expectations of of the likely heirs as they were sort of uh, led to believe by the decedent during their lifetime i mean all of those things any one of those things might be the trigger for a dispute but multiple uh, more than one of those things in combination is certainly going to increase the the likelihood. And and then I guess I just say too, like this is a general matter. I mean, people are living longer than they mm-hmm. used to and they're amassing more wealth. And when when people live longer, they live to see their children live to a, a more advanced age. And it's often the case where some some children are they need more, right? Their needs are different. And so when that happens, you know, the typical allocation still to this day is you you, you treat your kids equally right? And it's an equal allocation between all the children. And when that does not happen, feelings, and it's unexpected, uh, feelings can be hurt and people can get you know motivated by different things. And so I guess it's a, it's a long and windy answer to your question. It, 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 the basics are, it, it depends on the circumstances, but it feels like disputes in this area are continuing to happen more often, and I think are going to continue to kind of trend that way as the baby boomer generation um, you know, starts to pass on. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of wealth that is anticipated to pass here in the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years.
1: So that was a whole lot of answer to what was only a, you know, a superficially simple question, right? It was right. A, an impossibly open-ended question I asked you, so I expected quite a bit of <laughs> answer. So let's, I guess, start with by stating the obvious here, right? Um, One of the things that sort of separates estate litigations from more typical sort of contract disputes because that's a lot of what we're kind of talking about here um is that one of the parties is debt um and that's sort of the most important part right and that sort of presents its own challenges as you know everyone is kind of left reading the tea leaves in terms of intent and what's suspicious and what's not for sort of a, a lack of a better term
2: right uh well i mean in, in all of these cases you hit it on the head right the intent of the decedent is always the north star in these cases, and that's what courts want to carry out—the intent of the decedent. And when we're looking for the intent, uh, we start with the documents that they executed during their lifetime. And if those documents are properly executed, right? They sort of uh, meet all the formal requirements for a will or a trust or whatever it is we're talking about. You know, a court is going to presume that they're valid. Right. These are the they have the they have the decedent signature. This is what they put in place that, you know, nothing speaks louder than the document. But if the doc, if there's a reason to question the document and in these cases, the the two most common reasons to challenge a will or a trust are lack of capacity by the decedent when they put the document in place or undue influence, undue influence on the decedent uh, by someone um, or a combination of people prior to their death at a time when they were perhaps vulnerable or susceptible to influence. Um, and typically these claims come up in the, in, you know, in, in companion, right? You you yeah. allege a lack of capacity and undue influence. And any one of those, either one of those things could be enough to invalidate uh, a document, even one that was signed in the, in the Lisa Marie case. I mean, it, the challenge doesn't seem to be undue influence or, a, or lack of capacity, but instead just that the, the document itself should not be, treated as a, a valid modification of her estate plan because it's either you know not an authentic representation of her her signature itself or that you know it just doesn't meet the proper form which is a separate and apart from capacity or undue influence
1: you keep talking about um you know proper form mm-hmm. and, and and sort of t- terms like that sort of execution right um, these may sound like sort of very persnickety. Of lawyerly things, but in a case like this, where you know the party is not there to verify things, they're actually super important. And particularly in the estate planning context, it's not uncommon to find multiple versions of documents of the same document, with you know handwritten changes and different. I think you know, just to give us a random celebrity example of a will, like I mean, how many? Are, at first, they found no wills for Aretha Franklin, and by the end of the thing, they found five or six. Um, and so, and what sort of helps the court? sort through you know this paperwork and just have any kind of sort of idea of what's right and what's wrong and what they can rely on are these you know uh standards and and proper executions of the documents
2: 100% right and and you know the the proper execution rules can vary from state to state but for for a will it's typically a little bit more rigorous um you need you know multiple witnesses, and in our practice, we typically want to use disinterested witnesses uh, just to separate any sort of self interest of, of the witnesses from um, from the execution formalities. But it's, it can be a little bit more fluid for trusts, uh, the, the, the formalities for executing and, and proper execution. But uh, you're right, I mean, these, these rules are established for a reason, right? I mean, this is an you know, it's a very important document, probably one of the most important documents that anybody will sign in their lifetime, you know, sort of, how do I want my legacy to be handled after I'm gone, right? And, and so in order to sort of, I guess, recognize the solemnity of, of the document and the importance of it, we do put in place some pretty important rules to, um, you know, guide proper execution and, and enforceability
1: uh, of them. You mentioned that, that trusts have a little bit more leeway in this regard. Um, the trusts sort of are designed to be flexible, and that's kind of their purpose, right? Right. But um, how much leeway, I guess, how much control do those, those sort of four corners of the trust document have over what exactly the strictures for, um, you know, making certain changes are? Or, I mean, this in the Lisa McPresley case, right? It, it's believed that you know part of changing the trustee was just gi- giving written notice to the previous trustee, which is pretty innocuous, even though it maybe didn't happen. But so right. how deep can the trust document get away with going Is you know, you have to have like a sack race on non-consecutive Thursdays and, then <laughs> you know, like how silly can we get or is there some sort of baseline for how this works?
2: Yeah, it it, it it's a good question. And again, I think the answer probably will vary from jurisdiction to mm-hmm. jurisdiction, depending on, you know, there's a, a term of art, right? Bad facts make bad law. And a mm-hmm. lot of times, um, you know, if you have a bad set of facts, you might have a court that sort of goes out of its way to make a rule that is a little more onerous or may, maybe unintended, right? Have, have some unintended consequences. But most trusts will will set up rules for how they can be amended, right? And, and a lot of times, you know, a trust will say, this document can be amended by me, right? The person who is forming the trust and in any written instrument signed by me prior to my death, mm-hmm. right? And um, that, that's a pretty simple um, that's a pretty simple requirement. Um, in, in the case of Lisa Marie, it seems like there were a few other, I would say, so, sort of form over substance kinds of requirements, right. Um, sort of notif- notifying certain people, although there may have been some intention for, for, um, including those notice requirements, uh, in the, uh, trust where they're found. Right. And, and I think mm-hmm. the more, sort of the more the paper trail and the evidence demonstrates that there was a real purpose, Behind some of these technical requirements, notifying the then current trustee or other people that the trust was amended, I think the more likely it is that a court is going to enforce them. But you know, judges are human as well. And again, I mean, what 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 it all comes back to is the intent of the grantor. Mm-hmm. And 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 in this case, if the evidence demonstrates very clearly and persuasively that Lisa Marie intended this amendment uh, to her. To her trust to be effective, then that's what the court is going to end up doing. Um, And and you know I think some depending on sort of the nature of the um, lack of technicality, if you will, um, you know all facts and circumstances matter. But you know again, the more evidence demonstrates that this is really what Lisa Marie intended, the more likely it is that that amendment will be
1: upheld. And so Brian, when you say evidence. You know, our, our advisor audience might not know this, but depending on the legal procedure, you're not all evidence is admissible, even you know, no matter how sort of um final it could end up being in terms of determining something. Um there's strictures, you know, and a contract you're not allowed to bring in a lot of outside parole evidence in, in this case. What sort of ev- is is any evidence of intent allowed? You know, how far afield can, you know, these parties go to sort right. of provide evidence of what her intent was? That's you know, because it's such a fuzzy sort of finding right um
2: you know again this is a jurisdiction by jurisdiction sort of an analysis but in general in these kinds of cases um hearsay rules and and you know hearsay for those who don't know it's 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 an the, the technical definition is an out of court statement admitted for uh the truth of the matter asserted right so if someone were to come in to court and and testify that Lisa Marie told me that she intended this amendment to her trust to be valid. Well, that, that, that's classic hearsay, right? You're offering this out-of-court statement from Lisa Marie to be admitted for to, to prove up that this was her intent. Typically, that's not admissible. Typically, hearsay is not admissible. In these kinds of cases, however, hearsay rules are often relaxed so that testimony about what Lisa Marie may have told different people uh, about what she wanted to have happen, courts will admit it and they'll give it the weight that it deserves. Um, and, and they do that because the decedent, you know, again, it's it's what was the intent? I'm going to consider all the evidence. And if I find it to be credible, what I really want to do is implement Lisa Marie's intentions. And if somebody has relevant evidence, even if it might not sort of fall within the typical guidelines of the evidentiary rules, these cases are often litigated to the court Right to judges and not juries, and when you've got a, a judge who is typically sitting there saying, "Look, I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer, right? And I'm am a judge. I I I sit here every day and kind of weigh the credibility of witnesses. If I find someone's someone's testimony about what Lisa Marie may have told them to be credible, I'm going to hear it. I want to hmm. listen to what they have to say, and I'll decide whether it's whether I think it's true or not. Um, the other the other sort of source of evidence that is Often um, admitted in these kinds of cases are uh, the records of the of the attorneys or professionals who drafted mm-hmm. uh, the documents, right? So attorney notes, um, communications that may have been uh, that that may have gone back and forth between Lisa Marie and her attorneys. Typically, that stuff is is um, not admissible. It's it, you can't discover it because of attorney-client privilege rules and other confidentiality rules, and also hearsay rules. Uh, because it, you know, the notes or the file might be offered to 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 demonstrate what was Lisa Marie's intentions. In in these kinds of cases, these are sort of one of the rare exceptions where that stuff comes in. It comes in routinely, um, and so the drafting attorney's file is often offered as evidence of intent of their client uh, in in putting a an estate planning document in place.
1: Yeah, it really is interesting, sort of. I think a lot of what you just said kind of illustrates. How inconsistent and sort of you know, uh, not a sure thing, I guess, these sorts of, as, in so much as any litigation could be a sure thing, um, that these sorts of estate litigation specifically, specifically can be, right? You have all the sort of evidence that's not normally allowed. You have this element of who the judge is and what they happen to find credible. I mean, there's going to be a lot of overlap in that, but no two judges are going to find the exact same swath of people necessarily credible. So it, it does seem like there's a lot of um, play in terms of what's true and what's not in these sort of cases.
2: 100%. And, you know, a lot of times you're looking at, you know, decades and decades of of history, hmm. right? I mean, uh, you know, wills are amended and restated all the time. And so if you're really looking at, you know, if if, if I'm going into court and saying, well, I want to, you know, th- there may be multiple iterations of a, of a will or a trust that are relevant to the ultimate question of whether the most recently amended document is valid or not. Mm-hmm. And so you can be looking at, you know, in, in addition to sometimes the the flexibility and malleability of the rules that typically apply um, you're looking at, you know, lots and lots of uh, history that, that could be potentially relevant to the issue.
1: Yeah. You know, one other interesting thing, and this is sort of less, universally applicable but just like a fun thing about this one specifically um, is you know the, the, the question of, of a signature and the validity of a signature yeah. is one of those interesting things that doesn't necessarily always come up like if this was an episode of law and order and they were looking at sort of the various, you know you said there are numerous um, you know unusual you know things about this case. The one they would definitely focus on would be the the abnormality in the signature. They'd have you know some handwriting expert giving up, you know, a PowerPoint and stuff. You know, in a, in a non television context. So, sort to of how realistic is you know, sort of checking the validity of someone's signature? You know, especially signatures that could have happened you know decades apart.
2: Yeah in in in. 20 years of practice, I've heard people talk a lot about getting handwriting experts, and I've 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 actually seen it happen only a very small handful of times. I mean, mm. it, it is often one something that is questioned, but very rarely have I seen that be sort of the critical issue in the in the case. Um I, I I yeah, I'll I'll be very interested to see uh how this one in particular shakes out. And 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 I also, you know, my understanding too is that. The the amendment at issue here it wasn't notarized it wasn't witnessed and so the and the and the question of the authenticity of the signature is is at issue it seems like the authenticity of the signature is almost a, sort of a just another reason to sort of challenge the technical mm-hmm. compliance right we're sort of throwing everything at a wall at this point but um, I don't know we'll just have to see how this one plays
1: out yeah this is one of those fun things in like a post CSI world where we all expect every police department to have like crazy. Yeah, you know DNA uh, so, processing devices and things. It's like oh, those handwriting stuff doesn't yeah. really
2: come up. Well, a hundred percent, and you know, but but this is th- th- you know we often and I, and I know this is the point of your podcast, right? I mean, we, the things that come up in celebrity estates they happen all the time in yeah. non-celebrity estates, right? And what 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 you often will see is. Sort of an elderly person who allegedly, you know, modified his or her estate plan very late in their life when their when their handwriting was a little bit more chicken scratchy, right? And and it's sort of like, well, is that chicken scratch? Is that her chicken scratch? Is that really what it looked like, sort of at, at that stage in their life, or is it a little too perfect, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, it just it it you know you, you can come up with all the scenarios. They I'm sure they've been litigated in some way, shape, or form.
1: So bring things back and to bring it back to I guess the stuff that does really come up with more normal people you mentioned the element uh, that surprise can play in these sorts of lawsuits right Um, obviously if you're being someone who's being cut out of a will is never going to be thrilled about it um, usually unless you know they just really don't need it but you know in sort of other contexts you know sort of removing people from items you know if, if you give them some first of all you can have the fight while everyone's alive And second of all, it it gives time for sort of emotions to simmer down a bit, right? Where, you know, in this case, we're dealing with a large money sort of real estate situation. So, you know, there was going to be a fight probably regardless when you were cutting someone out. But the idea that Priscilla just like found out about this when her daughter died is like, of course, she's going to have, you know, a, a negative reaction initially to it. Like, oh, surprise, you actually have nothing, you know? So even if it was valid she would still there's a chance she would still challenge it because it's like well, what the hell because <laughs> it's just like a natural reaction
2: right Yeah I th- and I think Priscilla's issue was more about control I mean yeah. my understanding is that Lisa Marie's interest in Graceland and some of the other memorabilia was put in trust and the change in the in her estate plan you know essentially indicated that at her death Priscilla would not be the trustee of this trust but her lisa marie's children would be the trustee of the trust going forward and i think that's the issue there is that um, priscilla wants to be able to control sort of how these assets are monetized going forward how they're allocated etc um but but you're right i mean the issue of surprise that is almost all that that is a common thread right surprise or just sort of um you know an allocation that is for questionable on its face um and a lot of these disputes could be avoided um, if the decedent, you know, could could have those hard conversations with family members and others who might be disappointed in their decision while they're alive, they're super hard conversations to have. Uh, clients will often ask us, you know, as their counsel, uh, to have their have those conversations for them. Sometimes invite their children into. Uh, the conversations about their estate planning, success, succession planning, particularly when like businesses are involved and, you know, family owned businesses. And here's sort of the plan to allocate the business interests uh, going forward, you know, but but being transparent about that uh, and having the tough conversations with with your kids and others who have a potential interest about, look, these are my intentions and you might not like it, but I know what I'm doing and this is what I want to do. And you might not like my reasons for it, but it, it's not your call. Right, these are my assets, and I'm going to do with them as I please. It's a hard thing to do, but it it you know if anyone suspects that there's going to be a potential dispute after the fact, that those kinds of conversations can really help to ward that off.
1: And yeah, you specifically mentioned reasons, right? That's one of the the biggest parts of that is that you know they can tell whoever they're you know why this is why I'm doing this, as you know, because when that is left to the imagination, now you're sort of like okay, well go ahead, you know, 40 years of daddy problems, you know, figure right, <laughs> like run wild, you know, as opposed to saying like, well, you know, Steve's a drug addict, and you're gainfully employed. And I, you know, Steve's gonna need it better. And you know, he's gonna need, need it more. So I'm giving him more, as opposed oh. to like, you always liked him better. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> yes, 100%. Right? It's just hurt feelings, right? It can be hurt feelings. And, you know, all the kids thinking, well, what, you know, did did he love you more than me? No, that wasn't it. Right. He just, you know, he has more needs and you're self sufficient and you'll be fine. And, or, you know, I supported you during your lifetime. Right. And there was sort of a disproportional level of support during it. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of make things right at my death. And,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, but, but it, as long as someone has capacity and they are not being unduly influenced, they have the right to do whatever they want to do with their assets. They can give it away. They can give it to one person and set, you know, it's it, Everybody has the free will as long as they have capacity and are not being unduly influenced.
1: Yeah, and you know, that kind of ties back into two of the other things you talked about, sort of that the children's needs are different, right? That the idea that, you know, what is equal anyway at this point is really sort of rapidly, if it ever was right, actually an egalitarian way of doing things, it, it's quite quickly being exposed as like not really holding up anymore.
2: Right. Well, I say, I say this to my three kids all the time, right? Fair is not equal and equal is not fair.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And so and plus everyone living longer you're having more time you know for, for there are more parties to enter the yep. equation right it's like okay well if one child has all the grandchildren then how are we counting what's equal now <laughs> like, Right? because it's still you know how so it, it complicates this the longer everyone's alive and the more you try to stick to a you know a, a strict interpretation of egalitarianism in terms of that and being fair um the more complex that sort of Idea can get in these sorts of things, right. and, and the more room for uh, complaint and conflict that creates. So to close things off, you know, you mentioned the dual sort of things of lack of capacity and undue influence. You see that those two things kind of come up together. Um, you know, and what are some of the more common sort of? I mean, for you know, obviously, if if I'm an a, a financial advisor, I'm seeing probably the client more often than mm-hmm. the estate planning attorney certainly is hopefully <laughs> what are some things that advisors themselves um you know could sort of look out for you know in your case what, what do you see come up maybe over and over again in fact patterns in cases where uh you know lack of capacity or, or under influence is present in these sorts of things because inevitably the advisor is going to get dragged into this yeah um, and, and hopefully they can play some role in sort of trying to head it off you know eventually yep. before it happens
2: yep so you know, capacity in general in, in this context is, is is actually a pretty low bar, um, you know, in general, as long as someone is um, of sound mind, you know, which courts generally interpret to mean, you know, the ability to understand just the the, the property that they own sort of in a general level uh, and those who would naturally inherit their property, um, along with sort of the consequences, the basic consequences of the allocation Um that, that is enough, right? So you can, you know, someone can have a, a a formal diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's and still have capacity, right? As long as they can sort of hold those basic concepts in their mind, what they own, who would be the natural I- inheritors of their property, uh, as long as they can hold that in their mind long enough to, to make a, 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 you know, a, a, a decision about how they want their assets to be allocated, they can have capacity. Somebody who's subject to a guardianship or a conservatorship can still have capacity. Um, you know, in, in this context, it's often the case that, um, you know, people who are close uh, to the decedent will be called to testify sort of about anecdotes, you know, what, what were, what were they, what, what, what sort of things were they able to hold conversations about? Uh, what did they, kind of how did they go about their, their day to day? Were they able to uh, complete Crossword puzzles, for example, or talk about the news, or could they give directions to, you know, a a, a place that you know to, to their home, for example, you know, just just things that sort so, sort of anecdotal evidence that demonstrates just some level of intellect, right? That that it's is just, circumstantial. It's just so crazy evidence. to think that yeah, you know, right. That little but things I mean, it, like
1: that, like a multimillion dollar lawsuit could be determined by whether 100%. or not the the decedent was able to complete the New York Times crossword puzzle that morning.
2: 100%, right? But those are the kind of anecdotes that investment advisors will often remember and and to the extent that can be documented in real time while the person is still alive before there is a dispute. I mean that's why I say like a, a, an estate planner's file, you know, the the the, the most compelling evidence are is are, is the documentation of the decedent's intellect while they are still alive and whether that comes in, you know, in this day and age, video form, right? Um or you know handwritten notes or somebody's diary uh, but but you know before there's a, a dispute before sort of lines in the sand are drawn the, the the paper trail or the video trail on what this person was capable of and and, and sort of their level of intellect uh, that's what that's the kind of stuff that really matters um undue influence is 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 also and 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 lack of capacity in order to 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 invalidate Um, an estate planning instrument on grounds of lack of capacity, the the evidentiary bar is typically very high, right? Instead of just a preponderance of the evidence, which is a, you know, 51% more likely than not, you typically need clear and convincing evidence that a person lacked capacity. So in addition to a presumption that the document is valid, if it was signed and kind of properly executed, if you want to, if if you're going to argue that the person lacked capacity, You're going to have to demonstrate with clear and convincing evidence that somebody lacked capacity. And the same is true for undue influence, right? I mean, it just sort of demonstrates that courts are really reluctant if the document is sort of valid on its face and sort of checks all the formality boxes. Courts are going to be really reluctant to overturn those documents unless they're given pretty powerful evidence that uh, somebody just didn't understand what they were doing. Uh, or that they were being unduly influenced. And, and undue influence is it, in general, you know, the concept is that whoever was influencing uh, the the decedent to modify their estate plan, that that the, you know their influence was so dominant over the person that the document itself really does not reflect the free will uh, of the of the decedent, right? And that it reflects the will of the influencer. Uh, and there are a number of factors that that courts typically will consider. Um, things like, you know, the, the decedent's susceptibility to influence, right. Were they in kind of a vulnerable state? And, and that's where the capacity question is, is always relevant, uh, to the undue influence analysis. <clears throat> uh, but also things like, you know, did, did the influencer have the opportunity, uh, to exert this influence and, and did they have the disposition, right? Are, are they the kind of person that would be inclined and, and, and did the influencer benefit you know, from from the influence in some way. So, mm-hmm. multi-factor test, but you know, in general, very high bar um and very very difficult to prove.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting also to remember about undue influence is it's not. It sounds like one of those things which doesn't necessarily have to be malicious, right? It's so easy when you it's such an evocative term, undue influence. Where it's so easy to just picture like, oh yeah, this is like the evil stepmother who cut everyone out, or this is the you know. Uh, the the aide who you know gradually wormed their way into the good graces of the person and then eventually kept them away from their family, but like a lot of times, this is just whoever the closest child is has the parent's ear more than the other ones do. You know, whoever lives closer, <laughs> it, it's not necessarily always. Um, you know, it, it can be pretty you know, otherwise innocuous seeming situations. It's not always um, you know as, as sort of malicious as as the term itself makes it sound.
2: Well, yeah, and I think a lot of times, you know, undue influence is alleged, or it's at least, you know, the the, you know, the brother or the sister who was who who receives less of a percentage uh, of the estate or is cut out of the estate entirely, they can't believe that the decedent would ever do that, right? Certainly, they weren't of their right mind. If I was cut out of of the estate plan, right, so there must, by definition, there must have been undue influence Mm -hmm. and. You know, it's not that simple. Right. I mean, typically, in order to prevail on on an undue influence claim, uh, you do have to, you know, there's almost always an element of sort of malintent or Mm -hmm. just bad, bad conduct uh, by the influencer. If If the influencer is just, hey, look, I was the caretaker at the end of life and I wasn't involved in taking mom or dad to the attorney's office, or I wasn't involved. I I, do, I didn't sit through these meetings. Like I wasn't the one that precipitated this. This was mom or dad's decision. And it makes sense. I'm the one that was, you know, I was the caretaker. Yeah. Like if there's a reason for it, if it makes, I mean that a lot of this stuff is just sort of gut check, right? Does it yeah. make sense? I mean, would, would someone in their right mind do this? Or is this just sort of a radical, radical departure with no, no rhyme or reason to it? Um, you know, you can typically, sometimes it's really complicated, but sometimes it sort of jumps off the page.
1: Well, that's about all the time we have for today's episode. Uh, i first like to thank Brian Dillon for being a really great guest um, and really, you know, explaining a, a complex topic, you know, he sort of just got thrown, explained state litigation to everyone. Um, that, that's quite a bit to go over in, in a 30 minute conversation. So thank you for doing such a good job of it, Brian.
2: Uh, happy to do it, David. Thanks for inviting me.
1: And uh, for all listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates,
0: Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.